Coming up, the Astros stay alive and extend the World Series as the scene shifts back to Houston. I'll discuss a possible advantage as they try to push this series to a decisive seventh game. NFL Week 8 was an improvement from last Sunday as we saw a big upset by the Jets and an important win for the Saints, although it did come at a cost. College football is heating up as a couple of more top-ranked teams lose their grasp on a potential bid for the sports playoff come New Year's Eve. The Blackhawks are still winless, but the biggest news centers around a decade-plus story of sexual assault within the organization that has a coach in Florida having to resign. What is going on in the Eastern Conference, where so far it's been flipped upside down in the NBA? I'll have all that and much more as we say hello to the month of November, but first, this message. Hey everybody, Jay Reels here to share a friendly reminder. If this is your first time getting an opportunity to listen to what it is that I have to say about what's going on in the world of sports, welcome aboard. Or if you've been a long-time listener, not only do I welcome you back, but I want to advise you all to please subscribe, rate, and review the J Reels podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. Of course, this pod is on all platforms. On Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, Player FM, even Amazon Music. I not only host this endeavor, but I independently produce, edit, and write what you read and listen to, so your participation is vital to not only support the podcast, but increase the visibility, fuel the growth and expansion of this platform to those who aren't familiar with it. You could also share the show or a particular episode by posting on social media as well. The purpose of this is quite simple, people. To generate interest to those who aren't aware or know of this podcast, especially the former or current athlete, the broadcaster, blogger, sports writer, studio host, etc., as I want them to share their experience on the field, the court, the press box, broadcast booth, or in the studio with me, so then I can flip that to you guys and gals to deliver top-notch, fast-paced, entertaining, informative, incredible sports talk unlike any other, for everyone to listen and enjoy and to keep coming back for more on a week-in, week-out basis. You could also go to my website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. I appreciate you all for your support. Thank you very much for listening and believing in me. I hope you come back for more as your trusted source on everything that's happening in the world of sports. So with that said, the J Reels podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J. Rose Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? I hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits. As I'm sure you wake up this morning, you're sick of eating whatever candy that's been left over where you had a bunch of kids maybe did not knock on your door or nobody knocked on your door, depending on where you live, or even from your kids, whether they got buckets of candy, just a bag, whatever it is, as you rifle through whatever they got. And of course, you're always going to take the good stuff, right? You're going to take the Snickers, you're going to take the M&Ms, you're going to take maybe if they get a blow pop in there, who knows? But now it's a new day. 
Not only that, it's a new week and a new month. As we open our arms to November, getting closer to Thanksgiving. But now, let's put it in perspective. As we think about this, we are exactly two months away from 2022. 61 days. So my point is that as long as you're listening to this, you're alive, breathing, and have another chance to make things right in your world. So start taking the time to map out, plan, and execute how you want 2021 to finish so you could bulldoze into the new year. And with all that being said, guess what? Another episode is coming right at you with tons of sports talk to cover by yours truly, as this is the J Reels Podcast. For my first-timers, welcome aboard. And for those who've been banging with me for now 222 episodes, two's a wild across the board as we get into everything that's happening in the world of sports. So I welcome you guys and gals back. It is a Monday, November the 1st in the year of our Lord 2021. The J Reels What's the Deal segment. What to expect here on this podcast is as follows. The Chicago Blackhawks have had not only a rough start to this season, but probably their worst nightmare. When you look at the COVID cases they had to deal with and some of their key players, not winning a game as they're three weeks into a season, and then everything that has come out here over the course of the past week where the GM had to step down in a one-stand Bowman due to a sexual assault that took place under his watch going back 11 years ago, To where the coach at that time, who was the coach of the Florida Panthers, had to resign. Just a complete and utter mess, which we'll get into later on, as that will headline what's going on in the NHL. We're now inching closer to the halfway point of the NFL season. That's right. To think next week, a lot of teams will have reached eight games, but then we understand you got to get to nine. But most teams will have played nine games. We have a bunch of other teams that are still waiting to get to nine, but... Yesterday, there were a bunch of intriguing outcomes throughout the league. I'll get into my winners and losers with Week 8 concluding tonight in Kansas City with the Giants and Chiefs. Who would have thought that if you wake up this morning to see the Knicks, Wizards, Bulls, and Hornets being four of the five teams that are leading the Eastern Conference? What is going on? Are these teams for real? I know it's only two plus weeks in. But I'll get into that as I highlight everything that's happening in the association. Michigan's defense, Iowa's offense, and Penn State falls short as this month will reveal a lot as to who will be the front runners in college football's playoff. The schedule will get that much more intense. We'll dissect that all later on, including my hero and zero of the week. Well, we're finally getting to the home stretch of the Major League Baseball postseason. And with the way things turned out heading into last night's Game 5, people thought that the coronation for the Atlanta Braves was imminent. With the way they've pitched, with the way they've been clutch, with how they performed, especially in the first two home games after coming back to Atlanta, even at 1-1, because let's face it, the first two games were an absolute bore. They were a snooze. The Braves got off the deck in game one where they had five runs in the first three innings. They pounded Framber Valdez to the tune where Jorge Soler on the third pitch of the World Series hit a home run. I believe that's the first ever home run to lead off a World Series in the how many years it's been? 118, 19 year history of the World Series. Tack on another home run by Adam Duvall in that game, a two run homer to where they pretty much cruised. 
I know the Astros had a couple of times where they threatened and it looked like they could have taken the pendulum and swung it to their side of the field, but that wasn't to be. They lose game one, 5-2, to where game two, Max Fried didn't have it. The Astros were able to pound early and often, similar to what the Braves did the night before, and they fly over to Atlanta, even at 1-1. And with the Braves... Heading into that game three, they had been undefeated in this postseason at home. If you recall, they won the two games against Milwaukee to win that series. Then they won the three games against the Dodgers. And then now, with some home cooking in Hotlanta, which was far from it because the weather was chilly, rainy, especially the first couple of nights. But the bats, as quiet as they were, only scoring five runs in the two games. But they were enough to put them up three games to one to where Travis Darnot, the former Met, I'm sure a lot of Met fans look at that and say, uh, or they may say, good for him. Me, I could care less. But Darnot, with a one nothing lead in the eighth inning, puts on the capper there with a solo shot to win two zip. Then on Saturday night, game number four, the Astros scratch out a run early, but they weren't able to tack on any other runs throughout the course of the night. Yes, they were able to get another run later on, but that first inning was key because they had the bases loaded and they were only able to get the one run out of that. They left 11 runners on base throughout the course of the night and then the heroics by Dansby Swanson and Jorge Soler with the back-to-back home runs in the seventh inning to take the lead 3-2. to two. Will Smith, Tyler Matzik, guys who have been unhittable this postseason, seal the deal They're ready to celebrate like it's 1995, not 99, as we talked about last week. So here it is yesterday where the Braves get up and right off the bat, Adam Duvall, who hit that home run in game one against Framber Valdez, does the same opposite field, grand slam, 4-0, and right away you're thinking to yourself, geez, not only are they going to start the party, but are the Astros going to meekly head out of this postseason without a whimper. And in that top of the second was critical because if the Astros didn't put up a crooked number, or even if they just got one run, as it was, they got two, led by the double Alex Bregman, who was dropped in the lineup because he had just been awful throughout the course of this World Series. And look at that. It paid dividends there in the top of the second inning to where the Astros did get two runs. And they were able to tie the game at 4-4. And to me, that was critical to get those two runs there. The Braves were throwing a pitcher named Tucker Davidson. And he might as well have been Pete Davidson because he was a guy that they had to replace on the roster due to Charlie Morton getting struck by a ground ball in game one to where he was actually pitching with a fractured tibia. And therefore, they had to put Davidson in his roster spot If there was a more seasoned pitcher, if it was a more veteran pitcher where they probably would have given him just a little bit of length and would have had an opportunity to at least put the Astros at bay for a couple of innings. But even with a 4-0 lead, Davidson did not do the job. Like I said, he gave up those two runs there in the second inning, followed up by the other two to make it 4-4 in the third. But even at 4-4, you had a scenario where the Braves were able to go up 5-4 thanks to the home run by Freddie Freeman. And there's maybe when you thought where the Braves could kind of take off and see if they could extend this lead and then hopefully have that party. 
to celebrate the only, which would have been the second World Series title since they moved to Atlanta from Milwaukee. But that wasn't to be the case because the Astros finally got to one of their key bullpen members of the Braves, and that being A.J. Minter, with a big three-run fifth inning, which was led by, of all people, Martin Maldonado, who was able to get a walk where it led to a run, followed that by Marwin Gonzalez. Remember him? Yes, he was put on the roster just early in this postseason where he was a guy that bounced around Red Sox and been on a couple other teams. Back to the Astros. Remember, he was part of that 2017 team which won a World Series. And now you had a situation where the Astros took the lead at 7-5 and you just had a feeling that they weren't going to turn back from there. And they kept the Braves at bay. They tacked on a couple of runs there in the 7th and 8th inning. And now they fly back to Houston Down three games to two, but a lot of the momentum headed their way as they go into their building for game six tomorrow night and hopefully for them, a deciding game seven. Now the series has shifted a little bit as far as not only just the momentum, but maybe you'll have a little bit more drama. We saw a lot of that drama there Saturday night at 2-1 with the back-to-back home runs. We saw a little bit yesterday where the Astros were down early. They fought back, trailed again, took the lead, held on to the lead. And now as we get to a game six, the one thing that I'm going to look at here, especially if you're the Astros, is that the bats finally woke up when they absolutely had to. And not only that, but it woke up against a pitcher that had been unhittable and a one A.J. Minter. And that's throughout the whole postseason. Now you have to wonder whether or not they're going to be able to attack Tyler Matzik and then on top of that, Will Smith. And we understand that the longer the series goes, familiarity with these pitchers, it's going to be more of an advantage for the hitter. And I understand I could say the same the other way around for the Braves and the Astros relievers, but the Astros are looking to climb out of this 3-1 hole And as we know, these starting pitchers are not going to get any type of length here. So whether your name is Max Fried tomorrow night, or if it goes to a Game 7, Ian Anderson, we know that the first inkling of trouble, the bullpens are going to come to the rescue. And we know that it's going to be a bullpen game for both of these teams. It's not as if you're going to see whether your name is Max Fried, whether your name is Jose Urquidy, Ian Anderson, etc. These guys aren't going into the 5th, 6th, or dare I even say 7th inning. So when we take a look at these next two games, the one thing that I'm going to look at, and it's easy to say, oh, it's a battle of the bullpens, of course, and timely hitting, who's going to get big outs, understood. But it's the back end of that brave bullpen, to me, that is going to be the big question mark. Obviously, they haven't been a question mark up until this point. But now as the games get tighter, as it gets a lot more intense, a championship on the line for the Braves, let's say you're in the 8th inning or even in the 7th inning and Tyler Matzik is in and it's a 3-2 game. How is he going to perform on the road in that spot knowing that he's done it up until this point? But now this is for all the marbles. This is for the brass ring. We're going to see what they're really made of here. And it's not to say the Astros are going to be scot-free. Of course, a lot of the pressure and a lot of the spotlight's going to be on the back of their bullpen as well. But remember, the Braves are trying to secure a championship. 
and knowing that they had an opportunity to close in their building with a 4-0 lead, and granted it was the first inning, there was still plenty of game to go, but they weren't able to hold on and seal the deal. So with the momentum on the Astros' side, it's not as if the Braves and Astros were 2-2 and the Braves pulled out a game five to where now the momentum is on the Braves' side knowing that they need to win one more game. We've seen this movie before with the Braves. Granted, it was last year against the Dodgers in the NLCS. And yes, they had a 3-1 series lead against the Dodgers this year in the NLCS, but they were able to seal the deal. But here's the difference. Now they're going to Houston. The games aren't going to be played at Truist Park. And we know home field doesn't really mean much because all you got to do is look two years ago to the World Series between the Nationals and Astros. And how did that turn out when the Astros, after losing the first two games at home, went to Washington, swept those three games in the nation's capital with a chance to not only have one crack, but two cracks in winning a World Series? And we know what happened. And I would think that the Astros are feeling it to this extent, trying to revert what happened two years ago, knowing that they could come back from a 3-1 series lead to complete the first step, which they did, was to bring the series back to Houston. Now they just need to push it to a seventh game, and then when you get to that game seven, all hands on deck, last game of the baseball season, and let's hope we see one. And you know what? I think we're actually going to see one. When you think back, to 2014 we have seen four game sevens in the World Series during that time game seven between San Francisco and Kansas City game seven between Chicago and the Cleveland Indians of course that's the Cubs 2017 Astros and Dodgers 2019 Astros and Nationals and baseball needs it in the worst way let's face it I don't think a lot of people have been watching this World Series I'm sure once the Braves went up 3-1, they figured, ah, I'm not going to watch. If they're going to get a decent rating, and I'm talking about anywhere between 13 to 15 million people, because the rating has been around 9, 10 million people that are watching this. And we get baseball isn't what it once was. It's a totally different sport. It's not going to peak, whether it's the casual sports fan or even just a good sports fan. But baseball needs a Game 7 big time here. And what better drama would be than to have a Game 6? And we've seen classic Game 6s over the years. Do I even need to go through the history of Game 6s? Obviously, 86 World Series, Mets and Red Sox. 2011, the Cardinals and Texas Rangers. There's a ton of them. And those are the two that come off the top of my head. So we've seen some classic Game 6s along the way. And I'm sure baseball has their fingers crossed hoping for another one tomorrow night so they could have a decent rating come Wednesday night for Game 7. I think this series isn't done. Would I be shocked if the Braves win tomorrow night? Of course not. I think the Astros, they know what it takes to win. And the Braves, they're a tough team too. They've been to the postseason four straight years. They finally got over the hump with the Dodgers in the previous series, considering what happened last year in that same round. And the Astros, they did not go quietly into the offseason last night. And I would, wouldn't expect them to do that again tomorrow. Now, Max Freed, I'm sure he's going to pitch a lot better than he did in the first go-around in Game 2. But that's why they play the games. So I'm hoping for a Game 7. I know my prediction's out the window with the whole Astros in 6. Not that I have money on it or whatever. But we shall see what is going to unfold 
And I think the Astros are going to push it to a Game 7. And again, if there's one underlying advantage or I don't want to say storyline because it's not, but just something to keep an eye out for is the Brave bullpen versus the Astro lineup where I think the Astros are going to turn the tables, especially on the back end, the two guys that I mentioned, Tyler Matzik and Will Smith. And I would not be surprised if they get to him tomorrow night to set up the stage for hopefully what will be a classic Game 7. Quickly on a couple other things. I know these games are an eternity. It's just an embarrassment. It's a shame. And we've talked about this in podcasts past, but I can understand a 9-5 game maybe going past midnight. And even then, that's still inexcusable because these games should be three hours to maybe three hours and 20 minutes at the most. We understand the pitching changes. We get it. But to me, the remedy for all this is to not only keep the pitching changes or the mound visits, which they've tried to curtail here over the last couple of years, at a minimum, but could the batter stay in the damn batter's box? Because if you watch games from yesteryear, and again, I'm not trying to compare the game 20, 30 years ago to the game today, but the batters were in the batter's box. They never took a step out. They never swung the bat five or six times. They never adjusted their batting gloves. They never dug into the batter's box for, it seems like, 20 minutes like Jose Altuve does. If you cut all that out, the game will be a lot faster. And yes, the pitcher, you need to have a guy that's just going to get the sign and deliver, a la Greg Maddox. You don't want a guy that's going to be there for a half hour having to shake off the catcher, go through the signs again. Please, it's interminable. But if baseball wants to speed up the game, forget about the pitchers and the pitcher's clock. Let the batter stay in the batter's box and ready to go. That once the pitcher gets the ball back from the catcher, he's ready for that pitch. So that's number one. And number two, and this is an analytic thing and everybody knows how I'm on my high horse when it comes to this. But why are batters swinging at the first pitch in the ninth inning when they're down a run or two is beyond me. Why are they doing this? I can't believe that the analytics, they look at it and they say that a walk isn't as good as a hit. they rather have somebody swing the bat to tie the game because of the stupid launch angles and the matchups or whatever that they'd rather roll the dice and go that route than to take a strike. And especially you see it sometimes when the pitcher, like Will Smith the other night in game four, he threw two sliders outside at 2-0. and And then what happens? I think it was Jordan Alvarez. What does he do? He swings at 2-0. and And we understand it can be a fastball right down the middle. Get that. But you know what? He's wild for a reason. Take a strike. Doesn't hurt. Hopefully you'll see a fastball at 2-1. and one. Or if he throws another slide at 3-1, and one, then you can sit on the fastball. I don't get it. Irks me to no end. Those are two of the things I just had to bring up there. And it just uh, frustrates the hell out of me. So that's what we got with the series. I just wanted to throw those two things in there. And we shall see what happens. I know that the series could end tomorrow night or on Wednesday. So... If you don't follow me on any of my social media accounts, you could definitely do so. I'll have that at the end of the podcast and I'll talk about how you can reach me or you can see any of my videos I'm going to post because to recap a World Series, 
uh, next Monday when it comes to the conclusion tomorrow or even Wednesday night. Obviously, you want to get my first take at that time. But a couple other baseball notes before we move on. The San Diego Padres hired a new manager. And when I saw who it was, I almost had to do a double take because they hired the former Oakland Athletic manager, Bob Melvin. And the first thing I thought of was like, is he in the last year of a contract? Is Bob Melvin, was he fired at some point from the end of the regular season till now? What did I miss? Just so happens that the Padres and A.J. Proiler, the GM of San Diego, happened to get in contact with Billy Bean and company and asked if they could get permission or be granted permission to speak to Bob Melvin. And they said, sure, why not? Go at it. Have at it. And now, he is your new San Diego Padre manager, which was an excellent move by Preller because we know the back of Melvin's baseball card in the regular season. We know in the postseason, that's something you probably just want to close the book on. But he's a guy that's going to get you through 162 games. You could see what he's done in Oakland, a team that doesn't have a lot of resources, but we all know what their theory is about going back 20-some-odd years. So it makes you think, Twofold. One, unbelievable move by the Padres. This is a guy that could probably get you into the postseason. Can he get you over the top? That's another story, but it's you got to get to the playoffs before you can even think about winning a World Series. So understood. Great job by you, AJ Preller. To where the other side is, what were the A's thinking? I'm sure Melvin, I don't know what he made, and I'm sure it wasn't the minimum, but maybe they thought that Melvin was going to come to them with, hey, this is what I've done here over the last... X amount of years. Granted, I haven't been to a World Series, but we've been competitive. We made it to the postseason. They actually won a round last year against the White Sox. First time they've done that in forever. And maybe there were rumblings, and I don't know this. This is just speculation from afar, that maybe there was a raise upcoming and he felt as if that he deserved that, and rightfully so. But Billy Bean thought, no, well, we're only going to pay our managers X amount no matter what you do. So speak to the Padres, see what they're willing to do. And if they're going to give you more money or give you more years or whatever, so be it. That's probably what had happened. And for the A's who can't win anything and save their lives, and I'm sure whatever manager they plug in there, he may do well, who knows, but just peculiar on all ends as to why they would do that. I would think it probably boils down to a fiscal situation with the organization. And even though they may be getting a new stadium somewhere down the road as reports out of Oakland had stated that they're looking at a certain area by the bay where they're going to revamp this whole area, not only with the stadium, but also buildings, restaurants, etc. And good for them because if the A's were to move out of Oakland, then what a disgrace. Think about that. You had the Golden State Warriors going across the river to San Francisco. We know about Oakland the Raiders going to Las Vegas and then you would have lost the A's and you would have had no sports teams to root for in the Oakland area. But I digress. Bob Melvin is now your Padre manager as to why the A's did that is beyond me. And you know I have to throw in my two cents about this Mets situation before we move on. And what I mean by that is the vice president of baseball operations or new GM, whatever you want to call it, Because we're already more than three weeks from the end of the baseball season. 
And we know the names that have been thrown around as far as who the Mets were looking at to potentially replace Sandy Alderson, who you would think is in the room with the owner, Steve Cohen, to finalize a list as to who they want to run the franchise for over the next, whatever, three, four, five years. And the names that we've seen, or maybe I should say that have come and gone, whether your name is Theo Epstein, Billy Bean, David Stearns, Matt Arnold, Arnold Schwarzenegger, who knows? For all I know, maybe they even reached out to him. But the one thing you have to really wonder about before I even get to who the GM should be, you have to wonder why these candidates are turning not only just the job down, but maybe even the opportunity to interview for the job. And my belief is that they probably don't want to deal with the owner because the owner has now come front and center when we look at the organization as the new kid on the block. He has the new shiny toy. He's flexed his muscles on Twitter prior to the sale of this team. Right when the ink was dry on the contract to once he had full autonomy of the organization to where he tried to engage with the fans. Remember he had that hour and 15 minute, whatever you want to call it, Q&A. And here it is now a year later to where he's talked about his own players on the team. He's talked about the team struggles. The manager who was long gone in Luis Rojas where... We have no clue where they're going to go as far as not only just a GM, but a manager, please. What's going to happen here over the course of these next few days as the World Series is going to conclude? You would think, if not tomorrow night by Wednesday night, they're out in the woods when it comes to getting a candidate here. And then the sad part is, is that last week I talked about former Giant GM Brian Sabian, who not only won three World Series with the Giants in 2010, 12, and 14, but has a manager and a connection with the one Bruce Bochy who won those titles that maybe, just maybe, he could whisper into the ears of the aforementioned Cohen and the aforementioned Alderson as a possible prospect to not only get the guy that they want to oversee the operations of the franchise, but also bring in a guy who has the hardware. No, why would the Mets even do that? Or even entertain that? Why? Because they're the Mets. And now that a week or so has gone by since the last candidate dropped out or declined, I'm sure Brian Sabian is probably thinking, what is going on there? Why are guys dropping like flies? How come they haven't been able to even get a guy in the room let alone decide on one or two people that they have for their VP of Baseball Ops. And I would think, and would not be surprised, when you look at this regime, think Sandy Olsen back in 2015, when the Mets had an opportunity to get an outfielder in a one Carlos Gomez, and we know what happened after that, failed the physical, Wilma Flores, the tears, and now where do we look? Justin Upton. For whatever the reason, I believe it was with the Diamondbacks at the time, it was going to be too much for them that they wanted back in the trade, so therefore they scrapped that. Yoenis Cespedes was a guy that all of a sudden didn't even want to touch, but 
reluctantly traded for him at the last minute of the trade deadline on July 31st of that year. And we all know what happened for the rest of that 2015. The guy was pretty much the MVP of the league for two months. Forget about what happened afterwards. That's another story. But the point of this is that he was reluctant to go that route. And even though Brian Sabian has publicly stated that he would love to have an opportunity to overlook this whole organization and said it would be a challenge, etc., and I'm paraphrasing, watch the Mets reluctantly go to Sabian and then Sabian said, thanks but no thanks. Could you see that happening? You know I could. And like I said before, and I'll say now, it would be typical Mets if they had a guy, as I said, the connection with the manager. And I don't want to hear they want to hire some young whippersnapper a la the Cardinals where they just hired a 35-year-old manager, which is, I'm sure, what the front office wants to do. They don't want to have to deal with a guy who has the hardware, has the reputation, because then that means they can't put their imprint on the manager to say hey maybe we should choose this guy or put this reliever in or put this guy in the lineup wow he's played in three straight games he needs a day off can't do that with a guy who's won three world series I guess you could but you think Bochy's going to sign on the dotted line if that's the case which could be another reason why the Mets probably haven't even called Brian Sabian is because they know that all the eggs are going to have to go in that basket it can't be a collaborative effort it's going to have to be all on Bochi or nothing. Which is a disgrace because it just shows to you where baseball is in 2021 and maybe 2022 because we all know Armageddon is coming with the CBA. It is tough and brutal to be a Met fan. All right, now let's turn our attention to the NFL as uh, week eight will conclude tonight as I mentioned earlier, in Kansas City, which is a big game for the Chiefs. Now, mind you, the Giants, we know their struggles. And with a win against Carolina last week, you would think that they're going to set themselves up for an execution because I'm sure the Chiefs have heard it all week where they got bludgeoned in Tennessee. And I'm sure all the press clippings they probably read about, oh, the Chiefs aren't good, the Chiefs are bad, Andy Reid has lost his team, who knows? And I'm sure that's not the case, that's, Alleged. I'm not saying that he has lost the team, but whatever story that's come out of Kansas City and throughout the league, I bet that the Chiefs are going to lay 40 points tonight on the Giants. Maybe not 40 because their offense hasn't really clicked this year, but I could see them have a rocking chair type of game, 33-13, something like that. But you had a better week this week than last week because the schedule last week was brutal, and even this week, it wasn't anything to write home about as far as the matchups when you looked at the 1 o'clock and 4 o'clock slates as you woke up yesterday morning. But to go over the winners and losers of the week, my first winner, you got to go back to Thursday night, the Green Bay Packers with their wide receiving core out and pretty much piecemealing and patchworking their offense as best as they possibly could to win a game like that at Arizona, and I know the focus on the final play there with A.J. Green, the interception, that's going to go a long way. People are going to think of it as maybe even Arizona should have won the game more so than the Packers, but give it up. Great job by the Packers after that week one loss to the Saints, which was inexplicable at the time. 
They've been rolling ever since, and that was a huge win for the Packers because it throws a little intrigue in the NFC now. Let's just say if the Arizona Cardinals would have won that game, they would have been 8-0. They would have had a game and a half lead over the, or really two games now that I think about it, because they would have been 6-2 and to where Arizona's 8-0, so they would have had the two and a half with the tiebreaker. And then obviously with the Rams and them winning yesterday in Houston, they still would have had a game and a half considering they beat them head-to-head. But now you have a scenario where Arizona, the Rams, and Green Bay are all 7-1. and So it gives you a little logjam at the top and there's still plenty of football to be played, but more intrigue down the road when it comes to tiebreakers. And the Rams and Green Bay will play, I believe, in the coming weeks. I know Green Bay goes to Kansas City this week, but they'll play somewhere down the road. Arizona still has to play the Rams another time again. So for Green Bay, that was a huge win. They're my first winner. My second winner, I'm going to say the New Orleans Saints, but it came at a huge cost. And I'm not trying to make Jameis Winston out to be Tom Brady. But with Winston going down with the significant knee injury, don't know the full extent of it, but if you watch the play yesterday, Devin White from behind the horse collar tackle on Jameis Winston goes down, had to be helped off the field. Trevor Simeon, remember him, Jet fans? He came in relief and was admirable, did the job. Tom Brady wasn't as sharp yesterday. The Buccaneers, although they had a lead late, but they squandered it. Brady was not his accurate, usual self. But the Saints, with their victory, keep pace with the Buccaneers. Although they're a half game behind them, 5-2 and two right now, where Tampa 6-2. and two, But it does give them a shot, as of right now, in the division. Knowing that if they end up being tied, and I don't know when Tampa's bye is. So kudos to the Saints, although it may be short-lived, considering the knee injury here and we don't know how bad it's going to be for the Saints moving forward but again I'm not trying to make out Jameis Winston to be the guy that was going to lead them to a division title but when you ever you lose your start in the NFL it's a huge blow so that's the number one key concern right now in the Bayou so those are my two winners of the week and my losers they come from the same division and boy what a difference a week makes I hate to pick on them I really do because this was their third straight road game and they're following that up by an emotional, decisive road victory in Baltimore. But if you're the Bengals, you cannot, under any circumstance, lose to a Jet team with a backup quarterback that nobody has ever seen. Yes, I know he had some time there against the Patriots the week before, but for Mike White, and kudos to him, to go 37 for 45 to throw for 400 yards Three touchdowns, two interceptions. But to think, the Jets have not had a 400-yard passer in 21 years. And that happened on the Bengals' watch yesterday. Inexplicable. They had an 11-point lead in the fourth quarter. I don't know what in the hell Joe Burrow thought about that one play at 31-26 where he tried to fake right and go left and it was picked off to where the Jets punched it into the end zone. And yes, they got a bogus call there on a third and 10 where Mike Hilton, the former Steeler cornerback, went in on Ty Johnson to where it was unnecessary roughness because he led with the crown of his helmet. Absolute garbage call. 
But that's not the reason why they lost. But that's just a bad performance. To follow that game in Baltimore with that performance yesterday, knowing that they had a lead and weren't able to secure it, bad job by the Bengals. They're losing number one. And my second loser is the Cleveland Browns. Now, yes, could this be more of a winners for the Pittsburgh Steelers? And you could say that. And I've actually thought about that. But the Saints, to me, were the second runner-up because of all the scenarios I mentioned with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And I get it, the Steelers inch closer in the AFC North. But think about this if you're a Brown fan. We understand Baker Mayfield is hurt. He's not 100%. But they were only able to score 10 points off that Steeler defense. And not to say the Steeler defense is terrible. We know how I feel about them. But they were only able to put up 10 points. They couldn't run the ball with any consistency. Jarvis Landry had huge drops and an enormous fumble in the fourth quarter including that 4th and 12 where he had a drop. It was in his hands. And I understand the ball is a little high, but it should have been caught, and he has great hands to begin with. Just a brutal performance by the Browns to where I think it's time for them to ship Odell Beckham Jr. When you think of the output that he's had in that uniform, and granted he missed half a season because he tore his ACL last year, but boy, that offense should be lethal. It doesn't even do anything in the air. And I don't care if Baker Mayfield is literally throwing with one arm and can't even move that left side of his body. Odell Beckham should not get two targets and one catch for six yards in any game. And that's what you saw yesterday. And not a lot of that has to do with the head coach. Kevin Stefanski, we know he's the offensive guru on that team. But man, if you're a Brown fan, you got to be sick to your stomach this morning knowing that the Steelers went into your building Yes, they were able to muster up some offense in the second half. They lost their kicker in which it was inexplicable to me as to why Mike Tomlin wanted to put a fake punt or, excuse me, a fake field goal in that spot. I get it was toward the end of the quarter, but he lost his kicker maybe for the at least the next few weeks with a concussion. Who knows? So they had to go for two-point conversions because they didn't have anybody else on the roster to kick extra points. But the Steelers... They did it. No style points. We know how that goes. But the Browns just a terrible job. They're my second loser of the week. And when we take a look at the schedule from yesterday, do I really need to get into Philadelphia and Detroit 44-6? You know I'm going to skip that game. Sorry, Eagle fans. There's nothing really to talk about there. Same for Buffalo-Miami 26-11. I understand the game was close early, but really, am I going to get crazy going and trying to dissect that game? Absolutely not. Same for Jacksonville and Seattle. As Seattle gets in the win column, 31-7. The Rams beating Houston. They had a 38-0 lead, and I get that the spread was, what, 16.5? So with Houston coming back with 22 points to just upset the betters who put the 16.5 points for the Rams... And the final score being 38-22, that had to get a lot of people pulling their hair out of their heads. That's why I don't gamble. That's why I don't bet on these games. It's not for me. Denver and Washington, 17-10. I'm sure the game was close. I didn't really follow it carefully. But right, am I going to go crazy over that game? Absolutely not. Give it up for Jimmy Garoppolo. He had a very good performance in Chicago yesterday, although he had a couple of miraculous runs there by Justin Fields. But wasn't enough as the Niners win 33-22 at Soldier Field. And it makes you think Jimmy G knows that the tea leaves 
with Trey Lance, although he's been injured and he isn't ready at this moment of his career, but Garoppolo knows that not only just for the Niners, because I'm sure he sees the writing on the wall, but he is showcasing himself for his next job. And if he plays poorly in San Francisco while he's there now, what other team, and I'm sure there's going to be a team that's going to roll the dice on him, but he's going to have to perform well here. And he did so yesterday as the Niners win in the Windy City. Carolina beats Atlanta. Are you surprised there? I'm not. Even with Atlanta winning in Miami, but again, they beat Miami. Uh, Nothing really to write home about in that contest. Now as we get to a couple of these other games, Tennessee and Indianapolis. Now, Tennessee was down in this game early. I believe it was 14-0, and then they came storming back to where Carson Wentz from one second to the next, he's so Jekyll and Hyde, he threw a terrible pass. And I get it was out of desperation. I understand he was not trying to get sacked there for safety, but why was he trying to throw the ball left-handed while the pocket collapsed and he's actually halfway to the ground to where it was a pick six, but then he was able to turn that around, drive them down the field for the game-time score, but then he throws a pick in overtime. The Titans win 34-31, which pretty much secures the AFC South, if you ask me, because they're 6-2. and two. The Colts are 3-5, and five, but they have technically a four-game lead on them because they swept the season series and are three games ahead in the standings. But with that, it'll still make you wonder whether or not they'll win the division, yes, but can the Colts creep back up to the point to where maybe they could... I'm not going to say they're going to overtake them because, like I said, they're four games back. But news from Tennessee that Derrick Henry is going to be done for the season because he's going to need foot surgery is a crushing blow to forget about the Titans winning division. They're going to win it. But if they plan to get to a Super Bowl this year, you can forget about it. Unless somehow, some way, Ryan Tannehill becomes Dan Marino and they could keep A.J. Brown and Julio Jones healthy. But we know it's all about their running game. Because that's what's going to make Ryan Tannehill be productive in the passing game. So losing Henry, man, that is just, ugh. And arguably, he could have been your MVP of the league, considering what, he's rushed for 934 yards. He had a paltry for him output yesterday, 68 yards, I believe on 28 carries. But he was still 300 rushing yards more than the next guy on the list. And you're going to see, over the course of the rest of the season, how valuable he was to this team. Man, I couldn't even, I'd be beyond sick if I'm a Titan fan this morning. The Cowboys in their Sunday night game against Minnesota, which was ratcheted down a few knots because Dak Prescott was inactive due to that calf injury. But for Cooper Rush to come in, yeah, Cooper who? No, not Cooper Cup. Cooper Rush to start in the place of the injured Prescott, and for him to make a few plays down the stretch, the Cowboys, who now are 7-1 and one in a division where they're off and running, as we've seen over the last few weeks, but they're going to be untouched in the NFC East. Vikings, just a crushing loss. And you would have thought that maybe Kirk Cousins and how the Viking offense has performed this year, that maybe he would march down the field with a minute to go. Wasn't to be the case. In fact, they had no timeouts. They had a couple of guys try to get out of bounds late. They couldn't. The clock was running. 
and just ran out on a Viking chance to try to get themselves at least a little bit relevant in the NFC playoff picture, but that's not going to be the case. They are 3-5, and five and they're looking at a long season. But the Cowboys now 7-1, and one, and you also got to throw them in the mix with the Green Bays and the LA Rams, Arizona Cardinals, as we talked about earlier. So you can't forget the Cowboys being part of that top-heavy NFC. And when we look at the other game of note yesterday, the Chargers, they could have been my other loser of the week. But with the Patriots going cross-country and pulling out a win in SoFi 27-24, when we see the Chargers and all the potential that they have, they came off of a bye. The Patriots scored 54 points against a Jet team at home. And this was a game which I'm sure they're going to be kicking themselves in the rear end. Now, granted, they did not shoot themselves in the foot. You got to give it up to the Patriots. They played very well in this game. I know the big play was the pick six there by Adrian Phillips where the game was tied. They tacked on a two-point conversion there in the fourth quarter. So Herbert, I know it's a pass that he definitely wants to have back. But that's what the Patriots do. When you underestimate or when you think that ah, they got their big win, they finally got off the snide after losing all those games in a row, whether it was to Tampa. Even, uh, I know they beat the Jets last week, but they went through a stretch there where they started their season 0-4. They lost to Dallas at home, if you recall, a couple weeks back. And now here it is. They're 4-4. and They put themselves in a position where they could maybe make some hay for a 6th or 7th seed in an AFC, which is pretty much up for air. You know, it's up for grabs right now. Especially with the Titans losing Derrick Henry here. But that's for a few more weeks down the road. But give it up for the Patriots. They did an excellent job in winning that game against the Chargers. And we talked a little bit about the Steelers. I'm not going to get too crazy about them just yet. They do have a Monday night game, which I'll talk about in a couple of minutes. But that was your week in the NFL. And not really much else to discuss. So when we take a look ahead now to week number nine, which is not the halfway point. I know a lot of teams will have played eight games. But remember, we got to get to nine games here, people. So the week after, we'll look at the demarcation and start to look ahead for some of these teams, pretenders, contenders, etc. But the slate, just like the last two weeks, not good. Your Thursday night game last week was Green Bay, Arizona, one of the best that you've ever seen. And this week, it's the Jets at Colts. Woo! Too bad there's not a game eight in the World Series because the sports world would certainly use an extra night of some something to watch. But that's one that you could certainly change the channel and not bother. Sunday has Cleveland and Cincinnati. Not a lot of great games here. Denver at Dallas, Houston and Miami. Woo, that could be for your number one pick. But then, oh, wait a second. The Texans have the Dolphins' number one pick. Remember from the trade a couple years ago because they had the 2021 and the 2022 pick. So ooh, that's one that the Dolphins are certainly... Shaking their heads over. Atlanta, New Orleans. The Vegas Raiders at the Giants. New England, Carolina. Buffalo at Jacksonville. Ran, uh, Chargers at Philadelphia. Arizona, San Francisco. Your Sunday night game, which would have been great if Henry was there, but Tennessee at the LA Rams. Minnesota at Baltimore. Not a good week. Your Monday night game, Chicago at Pittsburgh. Yeah, that's not good either. And one thing I will say. And this is for the Steeler fan out there. Do you know that Mike Tomlin 
in the 14 years that he's coached this team, there are two teams that he has not beaten in his career. I'm sure the Steelers fan out there is like, no, that can't be true, is it? It is. The first team is the New Orleans Saints, which will have an opportunity to do next year, God willing. And the other team is the Bears. He has not beaten the Chicago Bears as he's been the coach. 2009, they lost in overtime at Soldier Field. 2013, they lost on a Sunday night game where Jay Cutler threw another touchdown pass. It was 41-27, I believe. And if you recall, in 2017, that was the game where the Steelers did not come out for the National Anthem. Alejandro Villanueva, the former left tackle, was... Part of the army stood in the tunnel to stand for the flag, but the Steelers lost that game, if you recall. So now they'll have an opportunity to beat the Bears on a Monday night, and again, a very lackluster schedule, but who knows? Maybe we'll have some upsets in the making, as we saw yesterday with the Bengals and the Jets. So that's what we have there for Week 9 in the National Football League. All right, now let's go from the pros to the college circuit as the Calendar now, as we know, is in November, and you're going to have a lot of these games, especially in the Big Ten, that are going to determine what team out of that conference is going to be part of this college playoff mix. And one team we know for sure is not going to be there is Iowa, and I'll get to them in a minute. But the Wolverines, who have gotten off to this great start this year, and although they haven't gotten into the teeth of the schedule, and it all started there Saturday when they had to go to East Lansing to play the Spartans of Michigan State. And Jim Harbaugh, I know, has to be beside himself because the Michigan offense did their job. Cade McNamara had a great day offensively. They even had a lead there late in the game. In fact, what was it? With about six minutes to go, midway to, well, past the midway point of the third quarter, as a Wolverine fan, I'm sure you're thinking, hey, there's no way our defense could let this up. We're up by two scores, literally 30-14. to 14. They figured that as long as they get a stop there from Michigan State, that they could go ahead and maybe try to just run the clock out or just move the change or maybe get that other score, that third score. Even if they got a field goal, 19 points, that it could have been the difference, that wasn't the case. Because just like we talk about in baseball, when you get that score, like the Astros were able to get those two runs in the top of the second after giving up four in the first, And I understand football doesn't really work that way, but sometimes it does in this regard. Even in the Steeler game yesterday, when the Browns got the touchdown to make it 10-3 and the Steeler offense is from hunger, what did the Steelers do? They marched down the field to get the tying score. But as it was, at 30-14, the Spartans were able to go on down the field to the point where Kenneth Walker, who rushed for five touchdowns in the game, 197 yards, Once they got that touchdown and the two-point conversion, it made you think, "Mm, this is not going to bode well for the Wolverines. Sure enough, that wasn't the case. Fourth quarter, Kenneth Walker runs for a 58-yard touchdown and another two-point conversion to tie the game. And even with the field goal there to make it 33-30, they still let Kenneth Walker run roughshod over that Wolverine defense. 23-yard run, five and change to go, and they weren't able to outlast their in-state rivals and pretty much have flushed their title hopes down the drain. And before you get crazy, oh, come on, Jerry, you can't say that. They still have destiny in their own hands. They still have to go to Penn State, which, yeah, they could beat them. But they also have Ohio State coming into their building. And we know Jim Harbaugh has not beaten the Buckeyes since he's been coach of that program. 
So I could see them being out. Iowa, the last two weeks, they've been dreadful offensively. They've only scored 14 points in the two games. They had, what, I think 154 yards against Wisconsin. And I get Wisconsin's defense can't show up. And the game was in uh, Madison. So for the Hawkeyes and all the talk about them maybe making some waves to be that team in the Big Ten Conference Championship to upend, whether it be Ohio State or even Michigan, maybe even Michigan State, you can forget about that. That's gone down the tubes. And then when you look at Penn State, as they played Ohio State, now Ohio State was in control. Penn State tried to rally back, but they fell way short, losing 11, or losing by 11. And Penn State, as we know, they're not going to be a team that's going to be representative of the college football playoff. So it's pretty much going to be Ohio State unless they lose to Michigan. Because remember, they lost to Oregon early in the year. And if they have two losses, there's no way that they're going to be a part of the New Year's Eve festivities when it comes down to the Final Four. So that's something we're going to have to keep in mind and really pay attention to here. And it looks like Ohio State's going to be the one team that we're going to have to zero in on. Because unless Michigan somehow beats Ohio State the Saturday after Thanksgiving... And again, a lot of these games, they're not going to be until the following week because that's the week where Ohio State will play Michigan State and Michigan will play Penn State, which will be a week from this coming Saturday. And then two weeks after that is when you'll have Ohio State, Michigan, and then Penn State, Michigan State. But by then, we don't have to worry about Penn State or even Michigan State. You got to have to give them a puncher's chance because they're part of this. And we'll see what's going to happen in two weeks when both Ohio State and Michigan State face one another. And let me just double check that while I have you guys here. Because I know we talked about this last week with the schedule. And I want to see where that game is going to be played. I want to say that game is going to be played at Ohio State. Between the Spartans and the Buckeyes. So as we take a look here. Actually, the Ohio State-Michigan State game is the week after. So they actually play back-to-back. Michigan State and Michigan. Now, the game is at home. It's in Columbus. So, they'll have the advantage there. But it is back-to-back. The week that I thought they were going to play, which was a week from this coming Saturday, they're playing Purdue. So, again, a lot of football to be played. And it's going to be interesting to see which team comes out of this because Michigan does have a shot. Now, granted, Michigan State's going to have to lose twice here along the way. So, not only will they have to lose against Ohio State, but they're also going to have to lose Michigan uh, Michigan State against Penn State. So, that's something they're going to have to keep their fingers crossed if they have any chance of being a part of this college football playoff. And as we look at the top 10 overall, we know Georgia... Still number one, still riding high, followed by Cincinnati, Alabama, who did not play, and they'll play LSU this coming week. And we'll take a look at the schedule in a moment. But after that, Oklahoma, so those are your top four. Again, Georgia, Cincinnati, Alabama, Oklahoma, as of right now. Michigan State moves up to five. They leapfrog over Ohio State. Then you have Oregon, Notre Dame, Michigan, Wake Forest are your top ten. Then you have Okie State, Auburn, which is a game you want to look out for, Auburn, especially when they play Alabama 
the Saturday after Thanksgiving because if Auburn does beat Alabama, goodbye Crimson Tide as far as the college football playoff goes. And that's what we have there for the rankings there to keep our eyes and ears open as we take a look at the schedule for next week. You have a couple of interesting matchups where you have to pay attention to a little bit. I know Michigan State at Purdue. You remember Purdue beat Iowa early this year, so you never know. And maybe it could be a little bit of a letdown with Michigan State. So that's something that you have to keep on your radar. Another game is Wake Forest. Now, who would have ever thought that Wake Forest would be up there, especially in the top 10 when you think of football, but they're going to North Carolina and Carolina could be tough. So not to say that Wake is going to be part of this Final Four, but you have to keep an eye on that. Besides that, Missouri at Georgia, Ohio State and Nebraska. Not a lot of good games. You got to wait till the week after. Tulsa at Cincinnati. Notre Dame's playing Navy. Auburn at A&M, that's a game you want to pay attention to also, but when you look at the grand scheme of things, is that one that you're going to jump up and down for? Probably not. But now we've made the turn into this month, November, a lot's going to unfold here, and we could see the picture starting to get a little bit clearer, but still... A lot to be played for, and you know I'll be on top of this here over the course of the next month, and we'll see how this shakes down as we get into Thanksgiving and then into early December with the conference championships, and then we can finally see who will be part of this Final Four moving forward. All right, now let's go to the association here real quick and talk about what is happening there because granted that we're two weeks in and these teams have only played six games, But when you click on your favorite sports website that you like to check standings, box scores, etc. And when you see that the Knicks, Wizards, Bulls, Miami Heat, no surprise to the Heat, but they're all 5-1 and and then the Charlotte Hornets are right behind them at 5-2. I'm sure you probably shake the cobwebs out of your eyes to say, what is going on here? Is this a misprint? Is this a typo? Because what happened to the Milwaukee Bucks? Where are the Celtics? Where are the Nets? Even the Sixers? Well, don't look now, but the Sixers are sixth in the conference. The Nets are eighth in the conference. And the Bucks and Celtics, if you want to chuckle at this thought, if the season ended today, they would not be in the playoffs. I know, it's only six games in. Got to have a little fun here, a little intrigue, right? But seriously, if the East, and we know these teams are going to come back to earth, goes without saying, but it is refreshing to see teams get off to such good starts that you know the Sixers, Bucks, Nets, I'm only going to throw Celtics in there, not that I expect them to do much this year as I've talked about in the past, but teams that we've seen there, and have had familiarity when it comes to the competition, when it comes to teams that are contenders, more so than pretenders, where you know they're going to have to work a little extra hard here to get themselves out of their early season malaises. And I get it. Living here in New York, the Knicks fans are coming out of the woodwork. I like to call them termites. And we understand that there are a lot of Knicks fans, diehards, etc., but there seems to be an overabundance here over the last few days to where they're really puffing out their chests, 
rocking the blue and orange and it just makes me want to say hey A slow down and B I hope that bandwagon has some airbags because for the Nick fan to get all giddy and I get it they've had two decades where they couldn't root for anything and last year they had 41 wins Tom Thibodeau they had a first round playoff series where they had home court and I'll leave it at that because we know what took place in that first round playoff series but Giddy aside, it's only six games, people. Okay? So even if you're in Washington, or even if you're in Charlotte, now the Bulls, I thought were going to be a much improved team. And that's not to say that there were going to be any semblance of the Jordan Bull teams. Of course not. But give it up for them and their good starts. And hopefully they can sustain that at least over the course of the next Let's say month. I won't even say sustain it to the new year. I won't even say to the all-star break. Let's see where we are on December 1st when we look at these teams and we'll handicap it at that time. But it's good to see. It's good for the league to have the Knicks be at the top. It's good to see the Wizards do well, even though it's probably going to be short-lived. The Hornets, we know they have a young team and they did make it to the postseason last year. Granted, it was the extended playoffs, the 7-10, but still... And let's see what happens. Even the Raptors give it up. They've actually performed pretty well. A lot of people thought they were going to be a 25-31 team. But again, it's only two weeks. Totally understand. And then out west, Golden State has played well. So has Utah. I know the Lakers are still trying to get their footing. We talked about that a little bit last week. Not really many surprises. I know the Suns have gotten off to a slow start here. As they're uh, 2-3. and three. But... Again, the Eastern Conference aside, and yes, there are surprises there early on, which you like to see. But this NBA season, once we get past Thanksgiving, and especially when we get to that barometer around Christmas, as the league celebrates that day with all the Christmas Day games, we'll have a much better feel for these teams at that time. And of course, you know, I'm going to continue to monitor it. There isn't anything really to kind of go crazy about right now or really to say, oh, we got to watch out for this. I know the Piston rookie, Cade Cunningham, the number one pick overall, finally played the other day. Did not really add much. I believe he had two points. Did have about seven rebounds. And I forgot how many minutes, but that's one guy if you want to look at to see how his development is going to be, especially for a Piston team. That's not going to do much. Okay, now he's finally made it into the lineup. But other than that, It's still very early in this NBA season, but I just thought to have a chuckle or two over what's happening in the East as they flip the conference upside down. And then I'm saving this for last with the NHL. And I know this is a tough story and just a sordid story to say the least. And the sad part is, is that this has been prevalent in the minor leagues, even more so in junior hockey. All you got to do is look up Sheldon Kennedy as one, the old... Detroit Red Winger, I know he bounced around a few other teams, but he was drafted by the Red Wings, played on the Red Wings, and he had to deal with a lot of trauma in his junior hockey day when it came to being assaulted sexually by coaches, and that's where I'm going here with the Blackhawks, because this team, who cannot get out of their own way, they have not won a game yet, they've had a bunch of COVID cases with their key players, including Patrick Kane, who is now off the COVID list, so... Who knows, maybe his presence and some production along the lines will get them to their first victory as their 0-7-2 to start off their 2021-2022 season. 
But for the Blackhawks and a former player by the name of Kyle Beach, who was part of the 2010 Stanley Cup team, and you had this assistant named Brad Aldrich, who at the time was assaulting this poor player, and I'm not going to get into all the details, but you can only imagine, to where it got swept under the rug, even the coach, Joel Quenville, who was not only a part of that team, but of course the two cup teams after that, and was the Florida Panther head coach up until about Wednesday before he had to resign because when all this came out about how they just swept it under the rug, how they just overlooked all this, how they didn't even pay in any mind, and for Beach to come out and share this story 11 years after the fact, obviously as courageous as I'm sure he probably had many sleepless nights, not only due to the fact of him being abused and assaulted, but just to even come out all these years later, man, I cannot even imagine what this guy had to go through. And for him, he could easily be my hero of the week, but this is such a big story that it has to be, unfortunately, it has to be part of this NHL segment, but I would be dumb to not even share my two cents and thoughts about this, which is a layup in regards to Aldrich, and obviously he's no longer in the picture, but where the GM, Stan Bowman, he had to be let go, and he had to say goodbye to his career, so he's long gone. Quenville, as I mentioned, he had to go to where now they have Andrew Burnett, or is it Brunette? I got it backwards. Andrew Brunette, who was the assistant, now has been anointed as the head coach of a team that has gotten off to the best start in its franchise's history. They're currently 8-0 with a, an overtime loss, but they're undefeated coming into the season where they had a lot of expectations based on what they did last year, even though it was a short sample size, 56 games. But for this to now unfold and to be brought out there is going to remind you of two things. Or one thing it will remind you of, and then the other thing, which I'll get to, one is this is... Penn State, Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky all over again. Now, granted, it wasn't several players like it was with Sandusky. But here you have the one player who came out, and who knows if there's other players. Remember, it's just the one guy. Was there another guy in that locker room that maybe was a victim and had to go through what Kyle Beach had to go through? Remains to be seen. And at this this point, would you even be surprised? So with Bowman out and with the Blackhawks in shambles, considering that that's just a black eye, not only just for the organization, but for the sport overall, and which leads to my next thing as to who knows how many other players or how many other NHL teams, whether they were Stanley Cup winning teams, playoff teams, reputable teams, or a team that's not even on the map, but of course are in the National Hockey League, Have any of their former players been affected by a coach, assistant coach, whatever it may be? Now, we've seen what's gone on as far as the old Calgary coach, who his name eludes me right now, where he had to step down, and the GM, based on some racist comments. But now you have a deal with sexual assault. I mean, geez, has this gone on or under the watch of the commissioner to where he's going to have to do some serious damage control? 
as it is right now, but even more so if this has happened under any other organization over the past 10, 15 years. And I get it, it's the NHL. Nobody pays it any mind. If this happened in the NFL, oh, geez. But then again, we've seen it happen in the NFL. I get it with the Washington football team and I know with the cheerleaders and all that. We talked about that in the past. And that should be handled swift, whether it means the owner's gone or whatever. And we've seen there's been a revamp of the organization as we know. But because the NHL, unfortunately, it gets fourth billing, if that, depending on the news cycle that day. But this is just, oh, as brutal as it gets, man. And to think, they all tried to hush-hush it. They all tried to say, oh, it never happened. And Quenville, he's done. As a coach, there's no way he's going to come back from this. None. I don't want to compare this to John Gruden because that's two totally different scenarios. I mean, here's the thing where he had one of his players assaulted and didn't say anything about it. And people could talk about Joe Paterno, and it's old news, I get it. And even to a certain extent, how about this? Remember what happened in Louisville with Rick Pitino and the players that were going to be recruited and having escorts and call girls and all that shown to the recruits that are going on throughout campus. And for Pitino to not know about it, give me a break. I mean, how can you not know about this? Just like Quenville. I mean, come on, you got to know about this. You may not have witnessed it or seen it, but word gets back to you. And it's how you handle it. And I'm sure in this case with Quenville, it's like, nah. All right, well, if we don't say anything about it, nobody's going to know about it. Well, the old saying, if it doesn't come out in the wash, it'll come out in the rinse. And sadly for Quenville, he will not be stepping into any NHL arenas as a paid member of an organization for as long as he lives. Yeah, I don't even know if they would even use him as a scout. That's how bad it is. But sadly, that leads the NHL portion of this because when we look around the league, as we're now almost a month into the season, I mentioned about the Panthers. And listen, they didn't miss a beat. They won their game. I believe they played yesterday. And that's going to be telling because a lot of the Panthers have come out and have been supportive of this. Jonathan Huberdeau, who is their team's arguably their best player, said that it was unfortunate. It definitely rocked our team, but we knew that we had to stay together and make sure that we try to get through this as seamless and know that this is a business to where they couldn't take any offense or look at it as a situation where we can't become engulfed in this. And even though, right, they beat the Red Wings there a couple nights ago, they did lose to the Bruins and that was their overtime loss. But for the... Panthers, you know, they want to keep that machine rolling as they lead the Atlantic Conference. And even the Sabres have played pretty well with everything I talked about with their offseason, Jack Eichel, and trying to get their footing. And they've actually gotten off to a pretty good start. But besides that, Tampa's been floundering a little bit. Same with the Maple Leafs. Bruins have not gotten off to the fastest start. Islanders continue their trek on the road. As we talked about, they've played seven games on the road and they still have another six to go before they have their home opener, which will be two weeks from this coming Saturday 
against Calgary. And Calgary's played very well here. They came out east. They destroyed the Rangers. They destroyed the Devils. They've actually played very well here. They've won six in a row. And off to a great start there out in the Pacific. Blues have played well. Arizona's another team that's not won a game to go along with the Blackhawks. If you want to talk about teams that have not gotten in the win column. Edmonton. There's a lot of parity here in the NHL. There really is. It's not like the NFL where the good teams are good, the bad teams are bad, and the teams in the middle are, eh, they're just that. And as the NBA, we just talked about the Eastern Conference so far. Now granted, we got to wait for the season to really take into shape, but the NHL, as we know, is wide open. And we'll continue to keep our fingers of the pulse when it comes to this NHL season. Now that we're facing cooler weather and the leaves changing, and uh, yes, we could pretty much say goodbye to short sleeves and shorts right about now because the weather has turned into the 50s and it looks like it's going to stay that way for quite some time. So, nor'easters, I'm sure they're going to be coming and for the northeasterners, that's it. It is time to get the jackets, the sweaters, and maybe even the skull hats and scarves because colder days are coming. And what's coming right now to close out? As always, my hero in zero of the week, My Hero of the Week goes to former Red Sox second baseman and broadcaster Jerry Remy, who died Saturday night after a long battle with lung cancer. Now, mind you, as early as Game 4, he threw out the first pitch against Tampa in the Tampa series. But if you recall, if you've watched that highlight, he had to get on the mound with the oxygen tank. And although he still looked pretty good, but... We know his fight was a long one and definitely battled to the very end. But Remy, a guy who was part of that 78 Red Sox team, that famed team that unfortunately lost in that epic game 163 against the Yankees, but he was a longtime broadcaster, born and raised in the Massachusetts area, was a longtime Red Sox fan, but told it like it was. And a guy that, I tell you, really fought to the very end. As I mentioned, if you did watch the Highlight of him throwing out that first pitch there right before game four, just two and a half weeks ago against the Tampa Bay Rays. Well, Jerry, you fought the long battle. You do not have to suffer anymore. You are my hero of the week. And my zero of the week goes to Houston Texans CEO Cal McNair for his inappropriate choice of words at a team event back in May. I don't know how this came to roost here. But at a charity golf tournament, he came out with a statement pretty much patterned after the former president where he was quoted that, I'm sorry we couldn't get together last year. I guess this is an annual golf tournament that he hosts where they couldn't get together because of the China virus. I guess Cal McNair did not follow suit to know that when you come out with a comment like that, it's going to be very offensive toward the Asian Americans or just the Asian group overall. And obviously he's apologized since then. But to think, a comment that he made almost six months ago came to bite him in the rear end and have to apologize for just his own stupidity. Cal McNair, come on, my guy. You should be and know better than that. You are my zero of the week. 
And that'll do it, episode 222, just about in the books, but a little housekeeping before I say goodbye. To those who listen to this podcast, whether it's your first time, 10th time, 100th time, 200th time, etc., you know I appreciate you guys and gals. Thank you for sticking with me, for writing this out, for listening to what it is I have to say about the world of sports. I do not take your participation for granted and following and listening to what it is I have to say. If you haven't done so, like I said at the top, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Throw me a few stars, write a review. It's going to increase the visibility as I continue to chug along. As you well know, I'm a one-man operation. I don't have assistance. I don't have a marketing team. This is all on me. In fact, you guys are my marketing team. So if you could go ahead and please subscribe, rate, review, and do your part, I would greatly appreciate it. If you want to hit me up on any of my social media accounts, you could do so at the following Instagram, J Reels or the J Reels Podcast. On Twitter, J Reels One, just a number. On Facebook, the J Reels Podcast, or the old fashioned way, the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. Send any questions, comments, criticism, praise, whatever it may be. I'll be sure to follow up. And also to keep yourself abreast on any video highlights that I will post, especially with the World Series ending, maybe tomorrow night or Wednesday night. You know, I'll throw in a couple of words there as the next podcast won't be up until next Monday. And then, of course, if you want to contribute in any way, shape, or form, you could do so at www.patreon.com slash the J Reels Podcast. That's P as in Paul, A T as in Tom, R E O N as in Nancy. Whatever you want to throw at me, it will go 100% to the production of this podcast, to the website, to the equipment, the upkeep, etc. Because whether you do or do not know, this is what I love to do, people. Sports has been in my blood since day one, it's in my DNA. This is what I love to talk about. As I've said time after time, the theory is in order to master something, you have to invest at least 10,000 hours. And I've done that, I believe in my heart, times three, maybe even four in my life. And I hope that it resonates through this microphone into your speakers or earbuds because I love to dissect, analyze, share my opinions and thoughts on everything that's happening in the world of the diamond, the ice, the gridiron, the hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx to South Beach to South Central to South Pacific and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>